About 10 years ago, I was nominated to be a commissioner to our denomination's uh, General Assembly. I was uh, an even younger pastor at that time and knew that the meeting I was heading to would be contentious. But it wasn't until I actually got to Detroit that I realized just how divided our national church was at that time. There were all kinds of lobbyists and special interest groups that were there and they were trying to get commissioner's attention and trying to convince us to vote one way or or vote the other. And uh, the, the two most divisive issues revolved around the definition of marriage and what our stance would be on the ongoing and still ongoing conflict in Israel and Palestine. In many ways, the assembly was just a microcosm of what was happening in our culture of what was happening in our our society, what continues to happen in our culture and happens in our society. There were frustrating moments filled with bureaucracy, with posturing and, and political games. But there were beautiful moments as well. One of them happened early one morning while I was walking from the hotel to the convention center. I hadn't had coffee yet which is a dangerous thing. I hadn't had coffee yet, and there was a a man walking in the same direction that I was walking, and he was way too happy, way too happy in my uncaffeinated mind. I saw the lanyard hanging around his neck, and I I knew that we were going to the same place, so we, we struck up a conversation. The boat we were taking that morning was a, a, a now infamous boat around changing our book of order, around, around marriage, and uh, he was ecstatic, ecstatic about the change. And he could tell that I was nervous. When he asked why, I said, well, I have to go back to a church that's not as excited as you are about this change. And I'll never forget his response. I'll never forget his response. He said, we have been debating this in our denomination for a long time long time. I just want to be able to fully minister to my community. And then he paused for a moment. But I could be wrong. But I could be wrong. I I could have it wrong. I was caught by the humility of his response. And the idea that there is room for doubt in our deepest convictions and in our deepest beliefs. He reminded me of the importance of holding tightly to essentials, like like believing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, while making room for nuance and making room for discussion, all at the same time. So this fall, we've been talking about what it looks like to build an inviting culture, uh, and it's a different sort of sermon series, but it's something that is incredibly important if we are going to live into our identity of inviting all people to follow Jesus on a journey of faith, friendship, and service. We live in a world, in a society, where churches, where where Christians, where we don't always have a reputation of being inviting. So we have to go above and beyond to do that, to be welcoming, to show hospitality to other people. We've talked about welcoming those who are seen as outsiders, Oliver the outsider, those who are are seen as as disinterested, disinterested Doug and his cousin Creaster, about people who are sad, sad Sam. And last week, 
about those among us who are busy, the busy bobs. How do we invite all of these different types of people? And this morning, I want to invite us to, to explore what it looks like to welcome Doubting Dave or, or Skeptical Sally or whatever name you want to tie to this wonderful Lego up on the screen. These are friends and family members who have questions or doubts that they just can't shake. How many of you know somebody who has a doubt that they just can't shake? How many of you is willing to admit you have a doubt that you just can't shake? It's all right. We're all, we're all friends here. Um, we're, we're talking about how do we welcome people and invite them to come with their questions, with their questions. I think it starts with what my new friend reminded me of that morning. Humility and the willingness to say, here's what I believe about this or that. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Scripture is full of people who found themselves in that exact place. Both, both Sarah and Abraham. They laughed when God told them about what God's plan was for them. Moses, he had simply done too much. He killed a man out of anger. He ran into the wilderness. He, he settled in the hills. He was good there in his mind. So when God told him he would go to Egypt to free God's people, he said, no, not me. Who am I? Not me. Surely God had the wrong person. Then there's Gideon who had a, a similar type of doubt. When God told him that he'd be the one to end generations and generations of oppression for the Israelite people. There are plenty of other examples in the Hebrew scriptures. Adam and Eve, David. If we pay attention, there always seems to be a back and forth between humans and God about what God had planned. And that back and forth typically involves some sort of, really? Some sort of doubt. And when we turn to the New Testament, that, that trend c- continues with the most well-known doubter, the most well-known doubter in, in the Bible that we talk about. I think it's unfair that we give him this name. Thomas. But he wasn't alone. Jesus' own mom struggled. Peter and Paul, they had all kinds of questions and doubts. And then there's John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the one who committed his entire life to prepare the way for Jesus, to point others toward the Messiah that was to come. Starting at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Anyone else caught off by that question? This is the guy who was there to introduce us to Jesus. And now he's in prison. Sends his disciples, are you sure? Are you sure that you're the one? Or should it be someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in a king's palace. Then what did you go out to see? A a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there was not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we unpack this passage a little bit this morning together, will you please pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your word, for the chance to open it together. Open our eyes and ears to what you have for us this morning so that we might be shaped for your purpose. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So yesterday was a busy and full day of sports for all kinds of people in the greater Los Angeles area. Soccer Saturday started in our house before 7.30 a.m. Darwin Kathy said they had a soccer game yesterday too. And as I pulled our daughter out of bed and put, put on her uniform, I said, wow, there's a whole lot going on today. We had soccer, then basketball evaluations, then another soccer game at 1 p.m. What about you all? Anybody watch any sports yesterday? Any sports? Anybody up early enough to watch UCLA? It wasn't that early. It was noon. Wasn't that early. How about stay up late for the SC game? Did anybody go to the SC game? Oh, we got a few people that went to the, the SC game. Um, I, I got a couple of text messages after midnight from some of you who were there. Thank you. <laughs> You're crazy. Committed and crazy. And then there was the Dodgers game. How many of you tuned in to watch? Anyone go to the game? Did anyone watch beyond the first inning? I know, I know, it's a low blow. But it could be worse. Your team could not be in the playoffs. It it, it could be worse. Maybe not. There's a word or a saying that I think originated in baseball, but as I did some research, some pointed that it originated maybe in golf, that applies to at least a couple of Dodger players in the playoffs. How many of you heard of an athlete having the yips? The yips, an athlete having the yips. The the yips, they're a sudden and unexplicable loss of ability, like an ace pitcher forgetting how to pitch in the playoffs, or a coach forgetting how to coach a defense for three weeks straight. There are all kinds of yips. A basketball player all of a sudden not being able to make a free throw. For whatever reason, one thing leads to another, and before long, that athlete just can't get out of whatever funk they were in. And, and we don't know why. 
There's not always a good explanation. And it's not just professionals. I, I, I coach all kinds of kids' sports. It happens with kids, too. It happens with kids, too, where one week they can throw the ball perfectly, and the next week it looks like they've never played baseball before. One week they, they can dribble a soccer ball, and the next week they don't even know what a soccer ball is. But in fact, I, I don't think it's just athletes that get the yips. Do musicians get the yips? Is there something for that for musicians? Where, where you forget where, where notes are or something like that? I, I don't think it's just athletes that get the yips. If you've ever felt stuck, if you've ever felt stuck on a project or in a relationship, or have gotten hung up in a way, in one way or another, without a clear explanation of why... It's a safe bet that you have had the yips. And more often than not, when we're in that place, everybody around us just disappears. We feel alone. We feel stuck. We have doubts about who we are. We have doubts about the community around us. We are stuck. There's frustration. There's anger. doesn't feel like there's any help in sight. I grew up in a Presbyterian church doing all kinds of things that Presbyterian kids in my generation were supposed to do. We saw pictures of them earlier. Sunday school, children's choirs, family camps, occasionally sitting in the sanctuary waiting for the pastor to stop talking so I could go and get as many snacks as possible from the courtyard. I loved the church. I loved the church that I grew up in. From friends my age to the older kids who I looked up to, to the adults who were like surrogate aunts and uncles, I felt like I belonged, like I had a place, like I was surrounded by all kinds of people. But for whatever reason, that all changed when I got to high school. That all changed when I got to high school. And it wasn't the church that had an abrupt change. It was, was me. I don't think this part of my journey is all that unique. Something happened as I moved from following what my parents believed to figuring out what I believed on my own. I felt alone. Alone with my questions. Alone with my, my doubts. And I often felt stuck. I didn't, I didn't have her words then, but I, I resonate with how Anne Lamont describes this feeling in her own faith journey. She, she writes, my coming to faith did not start with a leap, but rather a series of staggers, a series of staggers from what seemed like one safe place to another. The best way to get unstuck or to overcome the yips is often just plodding forward staggering from one safe place to the next. Now, this, this sermon isn't a sermon about moving from unbelief to belief or unpacking doubt. There are plenty of sermons out there about that. I have preached plenty of sermons about that. The intent of this sermon is how do we create a safe space, a safe community for, for others who are staggering forward with the doubts that they carry? When I was in high school, that safe space was created by a chemistry teacher named Bill. He's now a pastor, but he was a chemistry teacher when I met him. 
and by a musician named Mike who now owns a couple Chick-fil-A in the Georgia area. They made room for a group of high school boys to ask questions, to struggle. And along the way, they were vulnerable themselves and they shared their own struggles and their own doubts. Our, our text from Matthew this morning begins with the end of a charge that Jesus gives to the apostles as he sends them from town to town, doing the work that he started. He says, go out, go out with, with my authority and, and cast out demons and, and go out, go out and care for people. And, and they do that. That's the text that, that Daryl read. And as they go out, as they do their thing, people welcome them in some places and turn them away in others. And as some welcome them and some turn them away, Jesus goes back to Galilee. And Jesus goes back to Galilee and he does his thing. He starts preaching. He starts teaching again. And and word gets around. Word gets around by this time in Jesus' ministry about all that he was doing. And eventually it gets back to John the Baptist. The one who came to prepare the way for Jesus, who was in prison at the time. John couldn't have known what was coming for him, but he knew, at the very least, that he was in trouble with the authorities. So he sends some of his followers, some of his disciples, his students, to ask Jesus a very important question. All right, now this is the interactive part of the sermon. So you can wake up. When you think of or picture John the Baptist, what comes to mind? Shout it out. All at once you shouted it out. Uh, what did choir? Something about John the Baptist. He was what? He's a hippie. Is that what you said? Yeah, why was he a hippie, Diane? He did his own thing. He was a hippie. Think about the clothes he wore. Camel hair, lived in the wilderness. He was a hippie. What else? He, he ate bugs. Do hippies eat bugs? So, some, sometimes. Wild honey. Hippies definitely eat wild honey. He ate bugs. What else? Bat, bat, baptism. I heard baptism. Do I see a hand way back there? He was what? He was bored? You think John the Baptist was bored? Maybe. It's possible. Who, who was John the Baptist's mom? Dad. Elizabeth and Zachariah, right? Right. So, so he's Jesus' cousin. He jumps. He jumps in mom's womb when Jesus shows up. I should say when Mary shows up. He lived in the wilderness. He was a hippie in camel hair. Ate locusts and wild honey. People thought he looked and sounded like Elijah. And Jesus actually said, right, in the passage we read, that he was Elijah for his day. He prepared the way for Jesus, telling them that he baptized with water, but someone mightier was coming, somebody who would baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. Who did he baptize? Jesus. Ah, here we are awake. He baptized Jesus. 
He baptized Jesus and he sent him out. He sent him out on his ministry. He launched Jesus into the world. It's fair to say that John had an important role, right? It's fair to say that John the Baptist had a strong faith. And yet, even as important as he was, even as close as he was to Jesus, even with his deep convictions and all that he had been through, toward the end of his life, he had doubts. He had questions. Why don't we call him Doubting John? Keep picking on Thomas. He had doubts. In Matthew 3, we read about what John expected. What he thought Jesus was supposed to be. The image of the Messiah that that he had. While Jesus was healing people and preaching the good news that was to come, John thought that there would be a little bit more judgment. When he prophesied about Jesus, he painted a picture of a man carrying an axe in one hand and a winnowing fork in the other. The way Jesus responds to his cousin's question, it gives us an idea of how we can respond to the people in our lives who may have deep convictions and deep beliefs but also carry doubts. Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and to share about what they heard and what they saw. People were being healed. People were being cleansed. The dead were being raised. And and the good news was being proclaimed to the poor. And so he says, Jesus says to, to John's followers, go and tell John about all that you hear and all that you see. In his moment of uncertainty, John needed assurance that his own life, his life's work, wasn't wasted. That it had significance. And Jesus responds with, here's your assurance. Here's your assurance. It can be found in what's happening today. Go and tell him what you see and what you hear. Of course... When we're approached with friends with doubts, we don't have, we're not Jesus. We're not Jesus. And we don't necessarily have the same sort of things to report. But we can respond to doubting Dave and skeptical Sally in a similar way. We can create a community that welcomes doubt by sharing what God is doing among us. Go and report what you see and what you hear. Go and report what you see and hear, even as we carry our own doubts, even as we carry our own struggles. And by being open with what Jesus taught. When we're vulnerable and when we share our stories, we create space for others to do the same thing. One of my my favorite Bible scholars was reflecting on Jesus' response to John here in Matthew and and what we can do in our churches in in response to Jesus' response. And he he writes, there's all kinds of techniques for church growth, all kinds of of techniques for for renewal, for picking up the discouraged like John, or for, for guiding the eager like Peter. They all may be of real help, but the gift of faith comes only from Jesus' word and works. 
The gift of faith comes from Jesus' word, what he said, and works, what he did and what he is doing. So the question for us is, how are we sharing those things? How are we sharing what God is doing in our midst? Now I wonder what John's disciples talked about on their journey back to the jail. Was it, well, he's not going to really like what he heard. He's going to want something more. Or maybe they argued about who was going to have to be the one to tell John what they heard. Or maybe, just maybe, they were actually encouraged themselves by what they heard. We can't know. But after Jesus gave them a message for John, he turns to his own disciples. Gives a message for John, for John's disciples to take them. He turns to his own followers. And he gives them a message about John. He shares another story of faith using John as an example. People often feel left alone in their doubt. And if they grew up in a church, they, they might even feel like there's something wrong with them because they feel alone with their doubts. But Scripture is full of stories about how faith and doubt go hand in hand. Right before the, the Great Commission, as Jesus sends out his first followers to continue his work, we're told they gathered on a mountainside in Galilee and worshipped him. But some, this is the responsive part, but some, some doubted. Some doubted. The church began as a sent community called to teach and baptize, called to make disciples, sharing stories of who Jesus was and who Jesus is, of what Jesus said and what he continues to speak into existence today. And they carried their doubts along the way. May we continue here at WBC to do the same thing. Amen.